for those who don't know, my name's Ephraim, and I'm, I'm just really blessed to be back in the pulpit. <laughs> it feels like a long time. You know, it's September, you kind of got that back-to-school feeling, right? Even if you don't go to school anymore. <laughs> um, so we're going to be jumping back into our series, Superman HD, Superman Human and divine, as we look at the person of Jesus Christ, his humanity and his deity revealed in the book of John. Hi. Praise God. Now, um, I don't know about you. But I appreciate my sight, um, what I have of it. As you can see, I wear glasses. And so I don't have what they call 20-20 vision. Actually, my wife does, Judith. She has 20-20 vision. Um, <laughs> and I don't. So you can imagine the dynamic where my wife says, can't you see? <laughs> but I appreciate the vision that I do have. And um, recognize that, you know, sight is one of those means by which we perceive the environment around us, but also by which we communicate. Um, 75% of communication is nonverbal. And so we take in information, and um, much of that is by means of our sight. Sight is something that is also associated with knowing or um, related to knowing. So if somebody says, can you see what I'm saying? They're not actually being literal, although some of our minds work in that way, right? I know some people, you're very literal. And so somebody might say that, and initially you'll think, can I see what you're saying? The words, and you catch yourself. Some people are like that, and you think it's humorous, but actually some people are very, very literal, in the way that their mind works. But it's a, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place where you're looking for something and you can't find it. You're looking for something and you can't find it and yet it's right in front of you. You ever heard that saying, you can't see the wood for the trees? The very thing that you're looking for is right in front of you, but you don't recognize it. And that's not necessarily a problem with our physical vision, but it may be just preoccupation of the mind that prevents us from recognizing the thing being there, because we've got other things going on in our minds. And so we're not making the connection between seeing and knowing. We're looking, we're seeing, but we don't know that it's there. And so as we go into this chapter of John 9, we're going to see how God so wonderfully shows us how physical sight is a picture of spiritual sight. And as we encounter this man who was born blind, we'll recognize that 
actually his physical experience teaches us immensely about our human spiritual experience and how Jesus addresses that. What I'd like to do is read the chapter and then pray. Now, I wouldn't ordinarily do this, but like Richard, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And um, maybe for different reasons, with my girls um, growing up, this was a favorite chapter of ours, and I, and I have good times when I think of, uh, I think of good times when I, when I come to this chapter. But one of the reasons it's one of my favorite chapters, in addition to the fact of the good times with my girls, is the fact that it is so well written. It is so well, it is so engaging. It is, it is almost entertaining. And I don't want it to get lost as I kind of dissect it. I want us to get a feel for the drama of the text. Because sometimes you've got to feel it, you know. You can't just hear it, you've got to feel it. You understand what I'm saying? And so, um, let's turn to John chapter 9. And if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bible. And he, speaking of Jesus, passed by, sorry, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, 
What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray.
Father, we're gripped by the drama of this account. And we thank you, Lord, for preserving it and passing it on to us, knowing that not only is it a a, a gripping and even entertaining read, but there is much for us to, to dwell on, to meditate on by way of truth. Lord, I pray for your grace. Help us, Lord, as we walk through the text this afternoon to meet with you. Jesus, that our eyes would be opened and that, Lord, we would see you in all your glory. And like the man who was blind, that we would worship you with all of our hearts. Thank you for this time, Lord, and for the presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we see here in the text, the Lord's sixth sign. The book of John is, is, is kind of framed around seven signs and um, eight, um, being the eighth being the, the exceptional sign that is unlike any of the other signs and not in the same category, being that of his death and resurrection. And so, just by way of a quick recap, The signs so far, he fed the thousands in chapter 6, walked on water in chapter 6, healed the paralyzed in chapter 5, healed the nobleman's child and turned water into wine. Now we have to appreciate that Jesus has come to the Israelites, a people with a rich history and um, a long story in terms of their relationship with God. God had been revealing himself throughout the generations and he had spoken that a Messiah would come. And in doing so, the Messiah would fulfill certain things. And so as Jesus performs these signs, John doesn't choose to call them miracles, although they are miraculous. They are more than just a miracle for the miracle's sake but they are a miracle that serve as a sign pointing pointing to something of greater significance. And that great significance is the fact that Jesus Christ truly is God revealed in the flesh. And so here we meet the man who was born blind. The man who was born blind who Jesus healed. And we see in verse 1 that Jesus was passing by and saw him, the man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this man was well known. They knew his history. They knew that his blindness was not just Uh, a recent occurrence. It wasn't something that happened over time, but it was something that he experienced from birth. He was in that state of need from the time in which he came into the world. Praise be to God that Jesus passed by on that day and that Jesus saw his need. Because the man didn't see Jesus. 
You notice on this occasion, he doesn't call out. But as the disciples engage Jesus in conversation about him, Jesus responds to his need. Jesus knows your need. Even the needs that you don't know that you have. You know, sometimes we need something and we don't know. We don't understand. Sometimes we go to the doctor because we have an issue and we know that we have an issue. We know that we have a need, but we're not clear about what it is. And we're helping, hoping that the doctor will reveal to us what our need is and even meet that need. Well, enter to the scene, Dr. Jesus. Jesus knew the man's need and he knows all of our needs. And he recognizes that actually our needs are deeper than that which we often give credit for. Because as we see this man here born blind, there is a spiritual truth being communicated. The spiritual truth is that blindness is fundamental to our human condition. Spiritually, every person who comes into this world is born blind. We are born void of true spiritual knowledge. We are born without the ability to perceive God without his intervention. Now that might feel quite confrontational. But look at what Jesus said. He'd already declared this in John chapter 3 verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless, sorry, truly, truly, emphasis is included and intended. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. Thank you, Parson. Paying attention, (laughs) ready to correct me. It doesn't say enter, it says cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born anew, unless someone is born again, unless someone experiences the rebirth by God's spirit, we cannot see the kingdom of God. And so, this testifies to the fact that blindness is fundamental to our human condition. All are born spiritually blind. Now, Jesus said it. That's not just me. People might want to say, well, you know, that's one of the disciples. No, no. Jesus said it. And it's something that we have to come to terms with, embrace, and accept. You know, you have those people who say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I'm spiritual. Me and God, we're tight. (laughs) Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how spiritual we perceive ourselves to be. 
unless we have submitted to Christ, the one who gives light, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We do not rightly understand or perceive God. It takes God to reveal himself to us. And so Jesus saw this man's need, being blind from birth, as he sees our spiritual need, being blind spiritually from birth. And yet, as Richard mentioned last week, we see the disciples address the issue from the point of view of that grand question. I think the word was theodicy. The problem of evil. If God is, if God is good and all-powerful, why do bad things happen? If he's good and he can prevent bad things from happening, why do they, why do they happen? And this is the kind of sense that can be found in this question among others. In verse 2, the disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents? Whose fault is it? Whose wrong is it? Where does the problem lie? And it causes us to wonder. When we hear of loved ones who are ill, when we hear of loved ones who are facing serious health challenges, it makes us wonder, why does this happen? Why do people get sick? Why is it that people even die from sickness? Is it because of sin? Like Job's comforters, their thing about Job was, you're to blame. Somehow, in some way, it's your fault, Job. And they'd missed the point. It was according to God's will that Job went through what he went through. Just as it was according to God's will that this man was born blind. Look again at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You need to meditate on that for a moment. Meditate on that for a moment. This is Jesus saying, it's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. Although often we cannot understand why someone is sick, we have to understand that God's got a bigger plan. That's what this verse tells us. Jesus gave them the revelation. He gave them the understanding because he knew the root cause. Most often we don't. And so we have to trust God. And trust that whatever the reason might be, God's got a bigger plan. Jesus said that it's not because of his sin. Now, tell me this. When did the man become blind? You can talk back to me, it's all right. He, he became blind from over this side. From birth. So I'm wondering, at what point did he have opportunity to sin? 
in order to be punished with blindness. He was blind from birth. If he was blind from birth, when did he have opportunity to sin? And Jesus yet still answers the question. It was not that this man sinned. It wasn't because of some specific sin that he committed or his parents. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so, let's consider this and how it helps us as we wrestle with the issue of sickness and the reasons for it. First of all, let's understand that not all sickness is because of specific sin. That's what the verse tells us, amen? It wasn't his specific sin or his parents' specific sin. So not all sickness is because of some specific sin that someone has committed. So the next time you're feeling unwell and somebody wants to put you on a guilt trip, You don't have to receive that. Now, I say it's not because of specific sin, but that doesn't mean that sickness is not as a result of general sin. You see, both Jesus and the disciples had a very keen awareness that when God made the first people, he made them healthy. And they were perfectly healthy. And no sickness came into the world until the point at which they rebelled against him. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see God address the woman. Surely, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Now, pain can come in many forms, including sickness. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the very environment was infected by the sin of Adam and Eve. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, which cause pain, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And often, we go through pain to produce sweat. And so if you're ever wondering why people get sick, the general answer is right there. Because our very first forefathers rebelled against God. And that led to sickness being introduced into the world. And we were in them. Just like those who are part of a team. So I'm not one who follows football. But I understand that Arsenal fans and Tottenham fans even 
are feeling quite grieved because of the lack of signings. I mean, I don't know why Arsenal fans are grieved anyway, because from what I understand, that's Wenger's true to form anyway. That's how he carries on. He's stingy. I'm a liar. So I don't even know why they're feeling away. But they're vexed. <laughs> vexed. Feeling like our team has a reduced ability to succeed because we don't have winners added to our team. All humanity is in Team Adam. And what affects him affects us. Thankfully, Jesus is the winner, as we'll see. As one brother said, Jesus is the winner, man. (laughs) Praise be to God. So, not all sickness is because of specific sin. But it's all because of general sin. But also, there are a few other things I feel like I need to take a few minutes to clear up as we're dealing with the issue of sickness. Because there are some bad doctrines, bad teachings being circulated. So there are those who will say, sickness is because of demonic activity. All sickness is because of demonic activity. And they will even quote the scripture. And how do I know this? Because I used to do it. So, you know, they say confession is good for the soul. I used to be in error regarding this. And I used to take this very scripture and say, as a result of this, it means all sickness is the work of demons. So you need to bind and you need to loose and you need to do all of these things. This is the verse, Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You notice it says, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And so, that to me suggested, if someone was in need of healing, that meant that they were oppressed by demons. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. Let me show you. It says healing all who were oppressed by the devil. What it does not say is all who were healed were oppressed by the devil. It does not say that everybody that Jesus healed was oppressed by the devil. It says that Jesus healed those who were oppressed by the devil. But that's not the sum total of everyone that he healed. Now, you might think, hmm, let me um, show you another example. You imagine, not in Hill Carnival the other day now, you hear about record arrests. They turned around and they said, all the people arrested at carnival were black. All the criminals were black. You might feel a bit, hmm, okay, that sounds a bit, a bit biased. There seems to be something wrong with that picture. But you imagine now, if somebody was to turn around and say, yeah, you see, because all criminals are black. 
you'd go from feeling a bit funny to feeling offended. Regardless of your color. Because that's not what the report would say. All the criminals they caught were black does not say that all criminals are black. It just suggests that some criminals are, just as some aren't. And so, this is an example of how to treat scripture faithfully in its context and not use it to say something that it doesn't say. Not to make assumptions, but recognizing that a verse of text sits in the context of its chapter, but also the the book and the rest of the Bible. So not all sickness is because of demon oppression. Not all sickness. Okay. I'm grateful for the opportunity to deal with this one. Not all sickness is because of a generational curse. Now, some of us are familiar with that term. It's a term that is, I wouldn't even say sometimes, I'd say often used when speaking of sickness. Not all sickness is because of a generational curse. And this is what our verse tells us. Look, it was not that this man sinned or his parents His sickness was not as a result of his fault or any of his predecessors. If somebody wants to give the impression that sickness is because of a generational curse, then they would be mistaken to assert that. And to be dogmatic about that. Especially if speaking about those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are not under any curse. Generational or otherwise. Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. And in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So if you're in Christ Jesus, your life is submitted to him as your Lord and Savior, then you're not under any generational curse because Christ became a curse so that any curse upon our life would be broken. Amen? Amen. So, not all sickness is because of a generational curse. Not all sickness is because of demonic oppression. Not all sickness is because of specific sin. God had a bigger plan. 
God planned to use this man's sickness to glorify his name. Now, for us who see, who may see humans as the most important thing in existence, see people who as the most important thing in existence, we will struggle with that concept that God would even allow us to be sick for his glory. Uh, I, I mentioned this a few months back, and I'll mention it again in brief. Consider the fact that God became a man in Christ Jesus, and he suffered. And he suffered in order that our sin would be forgiven. That was the means by which we would experience forgiveness, the means by which we would experience redemption. I heard one preacher say that God had to allow suffering into the environment in order that our sin may be atoned for. Because that was, the, that was what he purposed before the foundation of the earth. That the lamb would be slain for the sins of his people. And so, God doesn't have us experience anything that he himself hasn't. And he experienced suffering unjustly. If there's anyone who didn't, like, oh, people get sick, they don't deserve it. If there's anyone who didn't deserve to experience suffering, it was Jesus. And yet he suffered for us that we might be forgiven. And so surely that puts things into perspective. In verses 4 and 7, we see Jesus identify the fact that he is the sent one. He is the sent one come from the Father to fulfill his purpose, to do his will, to reveal God to man, and to save us from sin. In verse 4, Jesus says, we must do the works, speaking of him and the disciples, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, the disciples were clearly, from that statement, being recognized as a part of God's plan, a part of God's team who would fulfill his will. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me, singular. So I've been sent by the Father. We're now a team and we're going to do the Father's works. Do you ever consider that applying to you? Do you ever consider the fact that actually you are here because you must do the works of him who sent Christ? You must not might, not could, not if you feel like, but you must. 
do the works of him who sent Christ. We are co-laborers. And as we see Jesus giving the disciples on-the-job training, he makes them aware of the time when things will become difficult. The time when night is coming and no one can work. And verse 5 explains to us what that refers to. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, meaning I'm not always going to be in the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so the disciples were even now being prepared for that point in time when Jesus would be taken from them. And yet commissioned to continue in the work. Now at this point it may not have been clear to them how they could do it. Because Jesus said no one can work. So Jesus, we're going to work while it's day and when the night comes we're not going to do any work. Because no one can work, right? No. Because as we'll see later he Gives them further understanding. I'll give you my spirit. He is the Greek word paraclete. The strengthener. The empowerer. And so we, no one, people say it's impossible to live the Christian life. It's impossible to do God's work. You're right, it is. It's impossible for us in our own strength to do that. But by God's spirit, we can. So let's not have a defeatist attitude. Let's not think, oh, well, I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. It's all going to hell anyway. (laughs) Jesus is the light of the world. And he sends us out as lights. Now, consider this. In the context, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In the context of restoring sight, or not even restoring because he never had it. Giving sight to a man who's never had it. If we understand anything about the eyes, we understand that our eyes work effectively by means of light. So on all of those occasions that you've got up in the middle of the night, making your way to the restroom, buck your toe, stub your, your, hurt your hand, all of, for lack of light, <laughs> it, proves the, it proves the point. It takes light in order for us to see. Jesus is the light of the world. It is only by means of his light that anyone can see anything spiritually. There is no other light in this world apart from Christ, spiritually speaking. And we will hear lots of voices and lots of offers and lots of suggestions and lots of philosophies that will tell us otherwise. You know that even the greatest um, illumination lights that are created cannot recreate completely and totally natural daylight. They will come close, but their imitations, they fall short. And there are lots of imitations 
The scripture tells us in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that actually even Satan himself comes as an angel of. He presents himself as light. But that's the devil. And so, don't get it twisted. There is nowhere else to look. There is nowhere else to find spiritual light apart from in Jesus. And if I could bang the table and stamp the floor and make you understand me, I would. But I don't trust this because it was kind of wobbly earlier. There is nowhere else to find spiritual light. Jesus said it. And so he spat on the ground and made mud. And he put it, made mud with his saliva. And I know, I know, I just know. (laughs) That's nasty. (laughs) But you know what? I have to laugh to myself. Could it be that there was nothing nasty about Jesus' spit? Uh, You know what? I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of it, right? But he was perfect in all his ways, right? (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. Keep it moving. (laughs) You lot could debate that. Jesus was perfect. God in the flesh. Was he spit nasty? What? The blind man never cared. Well, he went to wash. <laughs> he could have been ready to wash. Nasty man, got spit in my face. What's he doing? <laughs> uh, but the Lord sent him to the pool called Sent. He who was sent sent the man to the pool called Sent. And the man who never had any sight received sight. If that does not demonstrate that Jesus was sent to give spiritual sight, what more do we want? There's no, consin- there's no coincidence in the realm of God. Jesus sent the man to the pool called Saint, and he washed and came back seeing. Now, let's not neglect to appreciate the magnitude of this miracle. So, it's not very appetizing as you're getting ready to eat your lunch soon. The eyeball, the human eye. The human eye um, is in some ways equivalent to a, a 127 megapixel lens. Now, people are getting excited this year about the first 50 megapixel lens that a camera will be able to have. 50 megapixel. And they're excited. Now, you, you know, when you look at some of these huge posters that we see and so on, bus pictures and so on, they're taken with really high-resolution cameras, and none of them have been taken with a 50-megapixel lens yet. And you can zoom in, and it will still have such clarity. 
You know when something's really low resolution and you zoom in and it just goes blurry after like two clicks and you're just like... Uh. The human eye is equivalent to 127 million mega... Uh, 127 megapixels. There is no lens, no camera that has been created that can replicate the quality of the human eye. The human eye is so complicated, it has 40 million nerve endings. This man is Dr. Vijay Garantla. He is a, one of the, the world's leading transplant, human transplant surgeons. He's been doing research into um, the first complete eye transplant. Not just changing the lens on the front, or, but the complete eyeball out, eyeball in. He said that we are years away from a successful eye transplant. Now, you have to imagine, this is in the context of them being able to print human organs. <laughs> I, I said it right, you know. <laughs> print human organs. They have a printing machine that, can, that they put some um, material in. It's, it's on YouTube. It's not that everything on YouTube is true, right? But this is, this is widely publicized. And they've, they've, they've printed from this material a human liver and a human kidney that's able to be transplanted into the human body. The levels of technology that exist today is startling, if only you knew. They're saying that these printers, you can send the specifications via internet and a, a machine of this design can print engine parts anywhere in the world. So it's not as if technology is really like cavemanish. And yet the specialist says we are years away from a successful eye transplant. Look at what Jesus did. We don't know if it was a creative miracle if the man had no eyes whatsoever or if he had defective eyes that didn't work. But Jesus had mastery over the situation, whatever it was. And with simple spit and mud and the power of his will, the man was able to see. Huge, the magnitude of this miracle. This man who was known in the community as being the blind beggar. People were so astounded that when they saw him, they didn't recognize him. They were like, nah, I know what I'm seeing with my eyes, but my brain can't compute. I don't understand. Is this the same man who used to sit down begging, who we've known all his life to be blind? This can't be the man. How could it be possible that he can now see? It must be someone else. 
their minds entered into a, a state of suspended belief. The miracle was so powerful. The man had to convince them. Verse 9. I am the man. It's me. But we see from verse 11. He didn't even know who opened his eyes. The man called Jesus. I mean, you, you look at the, the account. Jesus didn't introduce himself. The, the, there was no conversation or dialogue beyond spit, mud, go to the pool, send and wash. Even though his eyes had been open, he still was partially sighted, spiritually speaking. And it's really important that we appreciate and understand that. Because when somebody becomes a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything becomes crystal clear. And we now know all of the mysteries of the universe. And sometimes there are those who have that expectation. I'm a Christian and, and I, should, I, should, I should get this. I should know this. I should understand this. As we read the Bible, it takes time for our understanding our spiritual sight to develop. He said, the man called Jesus. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. And so in the following verses, we see three investigations. I'm going to take them in chunks. Verses 13 to 17 show us a theological blindness. As now, the community are like, this is amazing. Is this of God? If you want to know if something's of God, where are you going to go? Ultimately, you're going to go to the pastor. You're going to go to the preacher. You're going to go. They took him to church. They took him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are now considering the situation. And here, we see that they have a theological blindness. Because their focus wasn't, wow, this miracle is amazing. Who is this person? Let's hear of him. Is this the one? Let's worship him. Their concern was that he had done this work on the Sabbath, verse 14. John throws that in there right at the beginning of the encounter with the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Because despite the amazing nature of the miracle, they were going to nitpick. And why were they nitpicking? Because they did not want to accept that Jesus was from God. Remember, Jesus is sent. He speaks to the man and tells him to go to the pool called sent. He sends the man to the place called sent in order to wash and receive his sight. And yet we see blindness here as they refuse to accept verse 16. This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now, it wasn't that Jesus broke the law in any way. If Jesus had broken any of God's laws when they crucified him, he would have stayed dead. He would have been guilty of sin. He wasn't guilty of breaking the law. 
he was guilty of defying their misinterpretation of the law. They had their own interpretations. And Jesus wasn't limited to their interpretations. He wasn't bound by their interpretations. And so he'd done the will of the Father in the way that the Father prescribed. And yet, they were not prepared to be teachable. They were not prepared to go back and review Are we actually seeing, understanding this right? Because this is clearly a work of God. We've at least got to go back and reconsider if we're understanding the Sabbath right. And this shows us that we have to be very careful as we hold to the word of God not to be found unteachable. 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that Right now, we see partially. Verses 9 to 12, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, immature in the faith, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now that doesn't mean that all of a sudden... We mature into full knowledge. No, because the next verse says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when Jesus comes, it will be face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so, no matter how much we mature in the faith, no matter how well, we grow in our knowledge of scripture. We can never take credit as a know-it-all. And we should never attempt to. Because that attitude of pride will be our immediate downfall. We must be always teachable, especially concerning those things that are subject to discussion. There are certain things in scripture that actually, you know what? We may agree to disagree So somebody once said to me after I spoke at a conference, um, you know, I really appreciated your talk, but I had a real problem, and I still do, the fact that you, 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 you preach with your hat on. And I said, I, I can appreciate that. And um, I used to be of the same conviction, but as I look at 1 Corinthians 11 and study it in the light of the, the, the text, um, the context of the whole scripture, um, maybe we have a different understanding. Maybe at some time we can talk about that, but I respect your point of view and I, and I appreciate you to respect mine because it's biblically founded. I have a biblical reason for it. And we can agree to disagree in an agreeable fashion. These people were not prepared to do that. The Pharisees were disagreeing in a disagreeable fashion because Jesus didn't follow their interpretation, which obviously was wrong, otherwise Jesus would have followed it. <clears throat> Often what happens when people are 
challenged on their interpretation of scripture and their, their, their ideas aren't accepted, they will then go on to actually seek to change the facts. And so in verses 18 to 23, we see that the Pharisees were trying to take it to another level. All right, you know what? Our theological argument isn't conclusive. People are not hearing us. Let's now question the facts. This guy wasn't somebody who was born blind. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so the next level of investigation, call his parents. Where's his mum? Bring them come. And yet still, they testify to the facts. I had a conversation with someone the other day and they was like, you know, um, I I really don't know if I'm really holding to the Bible anymore. I said, "Um, I hear that. I said, "Um, a question I would ask you is, are you giving up the Bible for something better? Are you giving up the Bible for something better? Do you have something that's more concrete, that's more sure, that's more convincing than the person of Jesus Christ? Ah, oh, well, you know. Right then I knew it was over. I had them on the ropes. Ah, oh, well, you know. What can we know? I said, you're right. What can we know? Everything we know, we accept by faith. And yet still, God gives us reason to believe. He gives us evidence. The person of Jesus Christ is the central person of history. He is the one who is the light of the world, the means by which we can see God. So don't spend your time trying to understand every page of scripture trying to work out and calculate every so-called contradiction just start with the basics what about Jesus Jesus is a person not just an idea or a philosophy or a teaching and so as a person what do we know about him well there's more evidence concerning the person of Jesus Christ than there is any other person or event of history. If you know anything about history and want to doubt the person of Jesus Christ, then you have to doubt everything. There are more factual evidences for us to examine and be convinced by And some of you will be encouraged by that and some of you that will mean nothing to. Because the reality is that no one is convinced by evidence alone. But it is the work of God's spirit placing faith in our heart to believe. Because everything is a matter of faith. Whatever you believe about history, whatever you believe about the Quran, whatever you believe about Hinduism, whatever you believe about anything is a matter of faith. C.S. Lewis said, there is sufficient evidence to convince anyone who is willing to believe. If someone's not willing to believe, all of the evidence in the world ain't going to mean nothing to them. 
as we see with these Pharisees. The man was born blind. His parents attested to it. Verse 20. They didn't know how he sees. And yet they knew that if they tried to challenge the Pharisees, they'd be thrown out of the community. That's what it meant to be put out of the synagogue. Verses 24 to 34, we see how the Pharisees were willfully blind. It wasn't a matter of information. It was a matter of the heart. And in their pride, they refused to accept. They called the blind man a second time. All right, look. Give, they're not saying give glory to God, give him praise. They're saying, look, let him receive all the honor that is due to him in this situation. Don't allow no honor to be taken away from him. We know that this man is a sinner. Do they really? How do they know that Jesus is a sinner? Because that's what they want to know about him in their hearts. And there are so many people likewise who have that view as a matter of choice. We see the blind man challenge them cheekily on their motive. (laughs) Boy, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But this I do know. And there's so many of us have this testimony. I can't tell you all of the the doctrines of scripture and all of the verses in the Bible. And I can't tell you all of those things, but what I do know is I was blind, but now I see. I remember when I got baptized, it was probably about, um, yeah, it was 29 years ago. Um, and that was my testimony as I was going down into the baptism pool. As you go into the baptism pool those days, he was wearing white. <laughs> Worst thing to wear, to get wet. Wearing all white. And um, you had to stop at the, at the, as you're going down into the pool and you had to share a little testimony. And I mean, you just become a Christian, you're brand new, new brand. You, you, you probably never even made a public address at all, but you had to give a testimony. And I stood there shaking and all I could think of was this song that we used to sing. I was once in darkness, but now my eyes can see. I was lost, but Jesus sought and found me. That was it. That was my testimony. I didn't have nothing more to say. I didn't have no horror story and no madness. And what, it was, that was my testimony. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Praise be to God. Sufficient. By God's grace, I'm still here today. And so he challenges them. And they claim Moses as their authority. When Jesus already established in, in um, chapter 5, and I'll read the verses briefly, he said that Moses will be the, their accuser. They're trying to rely on Moses. Moses is going to be the one that convicts them to the Father. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. From they heard that, they should have gone back and rethought everything. 
If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that was the heart of the problem. They claim, yeah, we're following Moses. You're breaking the Sabbath, the Sabbath that Moses instituted. No, they were following the oral traditions that were the interpretations and the commentary and all of the additional ideas that were added to the law. They had no hope in Moses. No one has hope in the law. There is only hope in Christ. The man goes on to share his testimony. And he makes the statement, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. Now this is a huge statement that poses all kinds of questions and um, they can get unpacked in fullness at another time. God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. You might think, but hold on, I'm sure that God, when I was even a sinner and I wasn't a Christian, God answered my prayer. This fundamentally says that God is under no obligation or commitment to hear a person, hear their prayer if they are in sin. If a person is not in right relationship with God, God has no obligation to have any regard for their prayer. If he chooses to, that's his choice according to his will and purpose. People like, oh, you know what? I can never believe in God because I pray about this, that, and the other, and he never answers. Well, that's because you're not in right relationship with him. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there are a number of others also. Psalm 109, verse 7, Isaiah 1, 15. All communicating the fact that someone who is in sin has no right of reply when approaching the Lord. Is that you today? You can have the right of reply. If you were to embrace Christ as Lord of your life. Because in him, you're adopted into the family of God. You become a child of God. And he will always hear you when you pray. Verses 35 to 41. The light gives sight and it blinds. So Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out and he said to the man, do you believe in the son of man? And he uses that messianic term coming from Daniel 7, the term that describes he who is the son of God, fully divine and yet fully human. Do you believe in him? It wasn't a generic question. It wasn't, do you believe he's going to come? It's like, do you believe in him? And we know it was specific because the man was like, I don't know who he is. Tell me who he is. He knew that Jesus was to be listened to. And so he said, look, if you tell me who he is, I will believe in him. Because I believe in you. And Jesus says these amazing words to the man who was born blind. You now see him. To the man who was born blind. You now see him. 
The man who could not see is now looking on the face of the Son of Man. No room or reason for doubt. He can see him when he couldn't see before. All the man could do was worship. And when the eyes of our hearts are opened, and when we grow in maturity in the Lord day by day, receiving fresh revelation of Jesus, it will lead us to worship. And not just sing songs on the Sunday as we are instructed to do by Scripture, but we will have hearts of adoration that are just overwhelmed and in awe and in adoration of the Lord because with the eyes of our hearts we behold him. We sing those words, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may see you. May we mean those words when we sing them. Because Jesus is the one who saves from judgment. Verse 39. And yet there are those who are proud and arrogant. Those who refuse to see. They refuse to give up the little that they know for that which they ought to know. That Jesus is the light. And so we see here, Jesus make it clear when they say, well, so what, are you saying that we're blind? Are you saying that we don't have any understanding? Wrong question. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you were to admit that you don't know nothing, if you were to admit that you don't understand, then you'd be free of guilt because you'd receive the light. But no, because you say we understand, your guilt remains. Because what you know is worth nothing if it's not centered in me. And so, what spiritual knowledge do you cling to as I ask the team to come? What spiritual knowledge do you cling to? What spiritual perception are you convinced by that is not aligned with Christ? As you hold to it, it holds you in readiness for judgment because the light has come into the world, Jesus said in John 3. But people love darkness rather than the light. Jesus is the light of the world. The one who gives spiritual sight. And the means by which we're able day by day to walk with effective spiritual vision. I'm going to close with this illustration. Jesus the headlight. You can come, it's all right. You know when you're driving, right? I, I was, uh, drove down to Cornwall this summer and um, I was in a rental. And it's always fun driving a rental in a brand new car. It's got all the mod cons. So it took me a while to work out that as I was driving, the headlights at night would automatically 
um, go to full beam and would automatically dip when another car was coming in the opposite direction. Listen. I've never, one who's, I've never really been one to covet like, vehicles and them kind of things, but when I started to experience that, I was like, Lord, I could work with this, you know, still. <laughs> Driving along, it will automatically dip when cars are coming. When you get into a place, no street lights, it senses the ambient light, lighting and it goes full beam. Automatically. And it caused me to think, you know, we've often said how the gospel is the light that we have to handle properly because we can use it to blind people. Now, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, only blinds people who are not following it. Those who refuse to come behind the light and follow it will be blinded because the light of Christ is not going to be dimmed for anyone. He is glorious. And yet, all who follow the light will benefit from the glory of its radiance. And so it's a matter of position. Will people change their position to follow the light? Or will they seek to travel by their own light in a direction opposite to that of the Savior? We're called to follow Jesus, who is the light. Let's stand. Father God, we um, recognize that you are the giver of sight, Lord. We thank you for giving your son who is the light of the world, the one who gives sight and light to walk by. And our prayer is that, Lord, you would help us to be submitted to the light following the light, allowing it to illuminate our path ahead of us. Lord, I pray for all those today who are trying to walk by their own light. I pray that they would abandon that course, Lord, and turn and follow you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we, we grow in our ability to see spiritually. The blind man met with Jesus and said, I don't know who the Son of Man is. He was still uncertain, unclear, but with a willing heart, a teachable heart. May we be willing and teachable in those things that we're uncertain and unclear about, Lord. That we might grow in our knowledge and insight of you. Thank you, Jesus for making it possible through your death and resurrection for us. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.